0: Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on the verge. My name is Emily Oshida. I am the entertainment editor at the Verge, and with me is Liz Lapato, the science editor at the Verge. Hello, everybody. Hello. Um, well, I uh, am, am, am joining this podcast from a, a remote location somewhere in the mountains of Utah, um, and we can get to that in a, in a little bit. Um, I'm actually at the Sundance Film Festival, and um, We'll be talking to a programmer here at the festival um, in the second half. But we wanted to go through some news because there's been some um, exciting news, especially in the space front this week.
1: Yeah, so this is, I, I want to encourage everybody to be extremely cautious about this, but it could be very cool. Um, two scientists from Caltech say that they found the best evidence yet that a ninth planet exists. Uh, no tea, no shade to Pluto. Um <laughs> <laughs> this is called uh, Planet X. They think it's probably around the size of Neptune. And the reason we haven't seen it is because there's uh, it orbits on a really weird path that takes about 10,000 years to make a circuit. So, oh, my God. Yeah, right? I mean, there, this, this so this is not the first time somebody has argued that there is a planet like this out there. Um, and um, major surveys of the sky have mostly disproven the existence of such an object, but at a larger size. Um, So at the size these scientists are proposing, uh, it's possible that those surveys missed it uh, because it's small. Um, And the the argument basically is theoretical. Uh, There are these um, objects that orbit uh, past Pluto. Uh, It's in the... um, the Coopier Belt. <laughs> the Coopier Belt. I've heard uh, of it. And uh, they, they seem to have been aligned by something large. Um, they have orbits that take them within the same area of the sun as though they've been pushed there by something bigger. So mathematical modeling suggests the possibility that Planet X um, is the thing that is doing that. But it's not totally clear that that's the case.
0: So, you know, be cautious about it. Uh, um, I th- I have one question. How big is it? that's the most important question about a planet right
1: yeah how big is it so uh, yeah <laughs> roughly the size of Neptune which is uh, somewhere between that's 200 yeah it's somewhere between 200 and a thousand times the size oh no that's the distance my bad <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> I'm we sorry. should note that Liz has a cold. Um, she is one of like half of the staff of The Verge this week that is under some kind of weather. So um she's being very heroic by joining us this week, and I appreciate her presence and yeah, her bravery. If
1: you sound if if I sound more like Tom Waits than usual, that's what's going on.
0: <laughs> no, it's only about two. Everything times exists the size on a on a on a Liz to Tom Waits uh, <laughs> scale of things. How much how much is the is Planet X like Tom Waits?
1: Well, in that it is mysterious and may not exist at all, like Tom Waits' uh, persona that he plays in in his music, because obviously he's a whole different person in his personal life.
0: (laughs) You know, Uh, yeah, uh, a little. I have to say, who who came up with the name Planet X? Is it just like a default name? Because I'm pretty sure that Planet X was the name of a rec center in Iowa when I was. Oh my God, you're right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, <laughs> it's like a place with a big ball pit, and an, which I mean, who knows? Maybe Planet X has a ball pit, but it just seems very like '90s, like extreme um, laser tag fun center type place.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of a holdout name from the other proposed potential planets uh, that that people have over the years suggested orbit. Um, because you know it's really common in other solar systems to have these large planets orbiting at a distance that that Planet
0: X would be in. Right. All right. Well, this is uh, this is exciting. That's probably like much more universe um, changing news than most of the stuff I have from entertainment this week. In fact, I, I have Oscars down to talk about this week, but I don't even want to talk about the Oscars right now. We've talked too much about the Oscars. We'll talk. There's plenty of time to talk about the Oscars. Um, I wanna talk about tree frogs, though. Oh, yeah, this is another fun one.
1: So, um, there's this breed of tree frogs that we thought went extinct in 1870, and then somebody found it in India recently. <laughs> wow. So, it's just been hiding out. Um, uh, Are in there North- a lot of them? Uh, maybe, no one really knows. Um, it sounds like uh, they, they're, they're a little bit secluded. They live in holes in trees and like mm-hmm. 20 feet above the forest floor. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. that, the areas that they live in aren't super well studied either. Um, but yeah, so that's exciting. The, the females lay their fertilized eggs in holes filled with water, and then they return to the, the tadpoles, which have these like very cool blue lips. Um, we, have, we have a photo of the tadpole on the website if you want to go check it out. Uh, but cool. I always get excited when something comes back from extinction, so uh, yeah, this, this tree
0: frog, it's back. Wow I um that's like i i how often does that happen does that I feel like it people need to be pretty certain that 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 an animal's extinct before they declare it extinct, but at the same time, you know as small as our world is, it's also very difficult to keep track of these things, especially for a small animal like that um usually, when we find something that that we thought was extinct and wasn't, it's because
1: you know it's got- it's made a niche in some area that people don't go to very often, um which is probably why it's you know, still kicking. (laughs) Right. Um, So it happens, uh, but not as often as one might hope.
0: Hmm. Um, Well, I'll I'll tell you the only thing of of interest that happened this last week. And, and this is mostly of interest because we have a really great piece up about it on the site, um, which I encourage everybody to read um, by Chris DeVille. Um, But ABC family, which is a channel on television um, that has existed for a really long time under a bunch of different names um, changed its name again to something called Freeform. It's still owned by ABC. It still has the same shows on it, but they changed their name to Freeform. And this seems like minor, like not very important news and doesn't really affect anybody who doesn't watch this, um, watch anything on ABC Family. So if you're not a pretty little liars fan, this might not affect you. But it's interesting. Um, I feel like we talk a lot yeah in the in the media world we talk a lot about and i I put on my my douchebag voice for that but um about what a site is going to be, what a website will be uh how much longer what we think of as a website is is left for this world, especially with like everything moving on to Facebook and it's interesting to think about the same kind of thing happening to a TV channel um because everybody just watches the shows that they like on demand now you you know you kind of have a vague awareness of where it is in tv or who makes it or who puts it out but it doesn't really necessarily affect where you watch it um and the exceptions are for stuff like abc family that has a very like dedicated core audience or like bravo something like that but it's in um chris wrote a really interesting piece um it's called what was the tv channel (laughs) in true n plus one (laughs) fashion um i gave it that headline so um I have to take a little bit of credit for that. <laughs> but I would encourage everybody to read it cuz it's, you know, it's it's a it's a small kind of dumb thing that happened, but the questions that it raises are really interesting. Well,
1: so here is um, here is maybe a stupid question. What do they hope to accomplish by changing the name of ABC Family to Freeform? What is what is the hope here?
0: The hope is that they kind of take it out of the family um realm. I think a lot of people who might be interested in some shows that are on ABC Family, but don't like the idea of watching a channel that says that has the word family in it. Um, some of those people might be on board. They their their first new show um, is called Shadow Hunters. It's based on a YA novel and it's about like you know hot demon hunters or whatever. Um, but you know it's not it's not necessarily a family show. It's like a teen show or a young adult show. I gotcha. Um, And so I think they're just trying to um, – it's interesting because what what Chris Chris points out is that it's actually the least free form it's ever been. They're actually really, really doubling down on this, like, YA, like, young audience. But they have to take the name family out of it because (laughs) that sort of impedes their progress there. Right. 13-year-olds are too cool to watch something called ABC Family. Yeah. I mean, it didn't stop a lot of them, but they're hoping that it'll stop less people. So – um, Freeform is a terrible name, also should be noted. Yep. Um. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's 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 TV this last week. Yeah.
1: Well, speaking of TV, Demon Hunters. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Let's
0: talk about the X Files. Um, X Files. All right. I have not watched the new show, and you have. Yeah. It comes out this Sunday, and your review will probably be running about the time that this podcast comes out. Yeah. So. We shouldn't get too spoilery about the new show itself. It's a new miniseries. It's gonna be airing on Fox. But I want to know kind of about more about what you talk about in your review, just about like what the show meant for you and yeah, how it yeah. fit into how it fit into the 90s.
1: So, um, I started watching the show in the first season, uh, probably about halfway through it. Uh, The first episode I caught was called Eve. It's the one with the creepy twins and like Mm -hmm. the both of them, they live across the country from each other and both of their fathers die. But what looks looks like exsanguination, they have their blood taken out. And so Mulder's like, oh, my God, it's aliens. And then Uh it turns out to be even weirder than aliens. Um, And it gave me nightmares. Like I granted I was 10 years old at the time. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. But it was like, it was a very intense show. And as an adult, having rewatched a lot of this stuff, what stands out to me um, is the degree to which The X-Files was kind of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer but for adults. So the anxieties that we had about like, in this case, about children, uh, about cloning, about science, about what we can and cannot accomplish, are the subjects that the X-Files takes in its Monster of the Week episodes. Um, And there was also an overarching mythology, which I didn't really care that much about, because I was way more interested in the sort of Twilight Zone-esque stuff. Where, like, they, you know, like, for instance, when they get trapped on a submarine and they have to figure out, you know, who's been infected by this parasitic worm they got out of the ice. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs)
0: Um, That's so I mean, it's so incredible because there's so many X-Files episodes that are like, this could have been a movie like this could have been a whole like you could have built a whole thriller around it. Um, And like or just a really good, weird, sciencey sci-fi film. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I mean, I see myself like I I watched I I watched a fair amount of X-Files growing up. Um, but I never really was aware or knew too much about what was going on with the overarching plot. I just liked tuning in every now and then and watching something weird and creepy. Um, and yeah, that had that 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 Twilight Zone vibe, but much more of a kind of like 90s paranoid, uh, like uh, what outer limits type vibe to it. <laughs> yeah, well, the 90s were a super paranoid
1: time. If you remember all of the conspiracy theories that were going around about the Clintons, Uh, and their role possibly in Vince Foster's death, which, you know, Mm -hmm. and then there was also the rumor that Courtney Love had in fact killed Kurt Cobain, that it was not a suicide. There were all of these, there was just, it was a lot of like leftover paranoia from the Cold War era, but there wasn't, you know, you couldn't just suspect the Russians of everything anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And so there was just this general air of paranoia and one of the biggest themes, um, on the X-Files was this idea of surveillance and that the government would surveil you and that's something you don't want. And
0: if you look around now, we're all surveilling ourselves. Right, yeah. (laughs) It's Um, funny because we had a neighbor when I I remember when we had a neighbor when I was a kid and my mom was like, oh, he's he's paranoid. He's like a conspiracy theorist. And he just seemed totally normal to me. But then, like, I don't know, I was like selling Girl Scout cookies or something and I saw all these like crazy magazines in his house. But I I think of the 90s as a time like peak time for like conspiracy theories, um, like weird tabloid stuff, like alien sightings and stuff. Just like being in the supermarket as a kid and like, seeing, you know. Uh, Bat boy uh, and yeah, Bat boy and Anna Nicole. Yeah, like those are those <laughs> those are the two uh, icons of the supermarket aisle uh, or the the checkout aisle of the supermarket. That's right. But and it, it's interesting because there was such a obsession with yeah, like ETS and uh, and alien abductions and stuff like that. And I don't exactly know. I can't really put my finger on why that stopped, what pushed it out?
1: So I have a couple of ideas, um, which may be operating together or separately or may not even be right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The first one is that the incidents of 9-11 gave us an actual tangible thing to fear and so refocused Mm. that kind of paranoia we had from the Cold War
0: era into something else. So that's... That's that's the, totally that, it. Why one. didn't I even think about that? I think anytime you, you're like, why did this cultural shift happen after the 90s? It's probably something to do with 9-11. But um.
1: <laughs> there's also another contributing factor, which I think is the internet and how good and sophisticated everybody got at spotting hoaxes as soon as we all figured out Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah. So, you know, a lot of these, like, Bigfoot footage or, like, the would-be flying saucers or whatever is being debunked really quickly by people who are looking at the pixels, like mm, that's a shop. Yeah, oh, that's a that's yeah. a tweaked image. There's no way that's real. So I think that's part of it. Um, and also, I think conspiracy theories have fads. You know, there are moments where conspiracy theories are really, really hot. Right? Like yeah. the alien thing got hot after Close Encounters of the what is it? The second, the third kind close encounters of the Uh third kind and the aliens that people were saying they saw looked a lot like the aliens in that movie. And we kind of moved on conspiracy theory wise to stuff like jet fuel can't melt steel beams and Benghazi. That's like the
0: dominant. Yeah. That's the dominant uh, conspiracy theory of the, the new millennium I feel. Right. Um, So in some sense, it's just moved into meme territory. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that's right. So in some sense, like, you know, that's, the 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 fad ended, <laughs> the UFO fad ended. Totally, uh, so, I just
0: remember so much stuff around then, like Roswell. I was actually thinking about Roswell a lot recently because I was watching a lot of Unreal on a plane. Um, have you seen that show? The, I have the not. No lifetime show. Because Shiri Appleby's on it. Um, Shiri Appleby is like one of these teen TV actors from the '90s who had like a WB show, like a middling w- WB show, and then you know kind of went you know off the radar for a while but then started doing some more tv stuff recently she was on girls for like an arc and now she's on this show on lifetime about the making of a reality show a bachelor-esque reality show um but i was thinking <laughs> this is like a huge tangent but anyway i was thinking about uh i was just thinking about that show which is about like aliens come to earth and disguise themselves as hot teen boys <laughs> um which is Amazing! I wish that that show still
1: existed. Are we are we
0: sure that hot teen boys aren't actually aliens? Has anybody that's also that's a that's a good question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So uh, yeah, I kind of I I mean I know that. We can talk a little bit about the show itself because I know you were disappointed by it. I've heard really bad things about it. It's a little general. boring, which
1: is weird for the X Files because boring is not a word I would use even for the sort of sad last
0: couple seasons, um, right? But it is it is. boring because it relies too much on like Mulder and Scully's relationship, or is it boring just because the 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 weird plots aren't as interesting? Uh, a little bit of both, but
1: also because so much of what's happening is exposition. Uh, we're being caught up uh-huh. in all of the mythology that got built up over the years of the show and where it all stands now.
0: And that's not why I watched the show in the first place. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so, it's interesting because everything has to be episodic now. And that was one of the charms of X-Files is that it wasn't really like like I said, like I watched it without really being aware of the overarching plot I just liked tuning in and hanging out with those two characters and seeing weird stuff. And like, you can't really do that anymore on a TV show. I feel like, especially on an hour-long TV show.
1: I mean, you know, you see it here and there, right? Like Black Mirror, which is like the most obvious heir to the X Files in that way totally. that I can think totally. of. Does just a different. It's a different thing every single time, which is like the Twilight Zone too. Um, I think there's a space for that uh, to have something conceptually where you execute something specific like you know this is going to be your weird tv hour and it's just different every time i think maybe yeah. that's that's something that we could revive a format that i would love to see again
0: yeah they're doing more of that um well i mean next uh, um, black mirrors coming to netflix um I think they have. I think they announced a date for it, but I don't remember when it is. And then um, they're also Sci-Fi is doing, and this could go either way. Sci-Fi is doing a creepy pasta um, uh, uh, anthology series, where it's a different. Um, I think each season is a different story, like similar to American Horror Story. But it's um, you know these these ghost stories from the internet like message boards it's it's yeah. based on those um, which is cool I mean I, it's a cool idea we'll see how it's executed Max Landis is doing it so mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know I don't know how it's going to turn out but uh, but it's it's promising it's like a cool it's a cool form it's like less investment heavy it doesn't want to take over your life the way that every single episodic show seems to want to um, but, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just the difference between wanting to read a novel and wanting to read short
0: stories, so. Totally, yeah. Uh, um, so I, I want to talk about something here that you wrote down for us to talk about. It's just a scientist fight in all caps, um, <laughs> which sounds really exciting. Uh.
1: <laughs> so believe it or not, it's What's a fight fun? over the origins of warfare, which, like, to me feels like really apropos, like, you know, Eris just threw that apple and everybody's Uh fighting over it now. But basically, uh, there was a study in Nature yesterday that described a 10,000-year-old massacre that took place in Kenya, uh, led to the deaths of at least 12 people. And of the bodies that Mm -hmm. were recovered, about 10 show signs of violent uh, injuries. And the other two appear to have been um, tied up when they died. So the authors of the study are saying this is the earliest scientifically dated evidence of violence between groups of ancient hunter gatherers. And that's what's what's tipped off the fight, because, um, you know, this was excavated in 2012 in Kenya. But there, in fact, is another um, another potential candidate for the earliest fight, which uh, is dated to 12,000 to 14,000 years ago, uh, was dug up in the North Sudan in the 60s. So right now, archaeologists are fighting about which was earlier, whether or not these groups are hunter-gatherers, and how the origins of warfare came to be. Um, the folks from, oh. from the most recent study say that there isn't a scientifically validated uh, date tied to the North Sudan site. So, you know, they're not totally sure it's 12,000 to 14,000 years ago, whereas they're certainly sure of the date on their own find.
0: Um, so what would this mean overall? Like what, uh, like depending on when the origin is or the nature of the origin, well, like what would it, would it change our understanding of how wars happen? Or yeah. like or kind of high level theory.
1: Well, so for a long time, people thought that the hunter gatherers were really peaceful, and it wasn't until people locked down land and became sort of sedentary that they started to fight wars. And if if everything in this study is right, which it may not be, it's still pretty early, but if it's right, um, it's evidence that there was violence among hunter-gatherers and warfare has been uh, a feature of society before we settled down and, and became sort of the sedentary communities that we we have today. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really a question about the origins of, of warfare, um, of, of systemic violence, and I mean, Either way, it's been through with us for a really, really long time. Um, I hear people yeah. talking about wanting to end war. And listen, it's a noble goal. But war has been with us longer than writing. <laughs> it's been right. with us longer than money. Um, yeah. So
0: I, there's a part of me that's kind of like, well, it's going to always be with us. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's sort of, it's interesting. It reminds me of like, <laughs> this sounds like bad, but it sounds like, like, um, like dog breeding, like domestic, domesticizing animals, like taking out these sort of fighter tendencies in a really old species. But then every once in a while it comes back. And like, I got bit by a dog when I was a kid. So like, I feel like that always, it's always with me that like, Oh, this dog that's like being totally chill and nice and sweet will suddenly like become a wolf again occasionally and like no matter how much time goes by or how you know how much behaviors are changed through you know un, un, I guess not totally natural means um, but it's interesting like that stuff always always keeps coming back and, and, and in enter- entertainment at least people always have a have a desire to watch it watch other people fight <laughs> Um, yeah,
1: I mean, it is a major feature of a lot of the shows we watch: are conflict, yeah. fighting. Uh, how do we resolve this? All of that and so, sports
0: too, of course. Of like, course, that's why we—that's how you know. we do war now. <laughs> yeah, it's domesticized war, which is fine. Um, yeah, it's uh thats interesting. So what's uh, so what's the what's where is it leaning right now? Or, is, or like, where do you sit on the in the debate? They- I you know I sit nowhere
1: I I love sitting on the sidelines for a scientist fight because they're very very <laughs> passionate I just I just enjoy like you know the catty things they say to each other um like you know in our report which is on the website and you should go check out like our one of the outside scientists that Ariel Duhame Ross who wrote the report called um, called the authors of the most recent study ignorant <laughs> oh my gosh like, literally, the quote is, the authors are ignorant. Um, it's getting so that shady was incredible. out there. Um, and then, people bashing people is totally banal. That's another good quote. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but, like,
0: while you're actually bashing another scientist. Right. Yeah, exactly. Really totally banal. <laughs> that's so great. Um I want to I wanna make sure we make a note to title this podcast I love sitting on the sidelines of a scientist fight because <laughs> that feels like a, a very apt title. Um, oh, cool. So, yeah, well, so um, yeah. That's,
1: the, that's what's going on is sort of in the scientific community right now in terms of yeah. hot, hot, hot goss is this particular... And, and
0: Ariel, Ariel wrote the report on that? She sure did. All right, so people should check that out. So, um... Like I said, I am in at Sundance this this week in Park City, Utah. Um, and I'm, I'm not talking too much about the the festival itself right now because I actually have not seen a single film. <laughs> uh, things don't really start till later tonight um, and then really ramp up over the weekend. But I wanted to talk um, to a friend of mine actually. Um, I went to school with her and she has been working for Sundance and for a few other festivals for a while now. Um, And she, you know, helps, you know, she's, she's in there screening all these films, watching them, like kind of shaping the festival, which in turn, like shapes a lot of dialogue around film for the next year. So um, I wanted to just have her on and just chat about what it's like to be a programmer at Sundance, because I think it's like, it's a, it's like a low key, very influential job. Um, So my friend's Dilcia Barrera. um, She's from uh, the Sundance Film Festival. And this is us chatting i am sitting with delcia barrera she is a programmer at the sundance film festival for
2: how many years now this is going to be my my ninth sundance but i think it's my fourth sundance as a programmer for shorts wow
0: I didn't realize it was that long. That's good. I feel like so much time has passed. Um, Dilsey and I know each other from college way back when, but um, she's been doing the festival thing for years now. And I Mm -hmm. feel like we always end up running into each other at festivals and events and stuff like that. Um, So I feel like she's maybe the most informed person I know personally to talk about (laughs) what Sundance is now and how it works and what goes on there. Um, But first I kind of just want to ask you a little bit how you got into the job.
2: So in college, actually nine years ago, um, one summer I got a call. Um, I got a call from a friend that was here doing an internship at Sundance, and he actually couldn't finish his work. So I came over and helped him finish his work, and then, you know, the people at Sundance, the feature film program, asked me if I was interested in an internship. So I started off. I was one out of ten because mm-hmm. we back then without a box didn't exist. So we did all the customer service.
0: Oh wow. So this was a long time ago. A long yeah. time
2: ago this is pre Sundance having I mean, without a box. Yeah. So we used to run everything.
0: And we should explain without a box is mm-hmm. a generalized film festival submission platform. So Sundance is on there. Basically any film festival. I imagine maybe like a few yeah. aren't, but
2: now big ones have joined like Toronto so a lot of regional film festivals and it's a great way to just keep submitting to different places yeah yeah. get your full your film shown around the world
0: it's like the common application for college but for film festivals (laughs) yeah we do
2: get a lot of applications to other festivals (laughs) submitted to Sundance oh yeah with the wrong heading because of (laughs) you know without a box but it's Would you still, take it personally? Um, no, <laughs> I mean I still just focus my complete judgment on the work, but it is funny, and I understand it. So you worked for you know, on features as an
0: intern, and yeah. then so how did you transition to actually working as a programmer and working on shorts?
2: So as an intern, um, actually one of the shorts programmers always um, encouraged us to help out and watch and make sure the films that we were rate that. Programmers were passing on were actual passes, and I don't know to just get a kind of palette and and feel for what the the shorts team was choosing. So I I was watching pretty early on, mm-hmm. um, but um, after Sundance, I started working at other film festivals in LA, including OutFest, which is the LGBT film festival, and I worked with um, other programmers there, like Kim Utani. She's now a senior programmer here at Sundance, and um, I just started watching. I started watching as much as I could, um, as much as I could get my, uh, my hands on. I started volunteering at Los Angeles Film Festival, at AFI Fest, and from there, just started getting to know the, the different festivals and what they were looking for. And eventually, uh, many years later, and many years of volunteering and coordinating and working different positions, I was um, invited to be part of the Sundance Shorts programming team.
0: Cool. Mm -hmm. What was it about, what was it about the job that attracted you? Like, I mean, what made you, after just being an intern, Mm -hmm. feel like you wanted it to be your job
2: job? I don't know if we've ever even talked about this. Yeah, because you (laughs) were in film school and I wasn't. Yeah, I was studying um, Spanish Lit. Mm -hmm. So you know, from Spanish and Portuguese literature, jumping into film festivals was a pretty big leap. But surprisingly, a lot of my colleagues actually study literature. And I think it has to do with like the way we analyze a film like critically. And um, we try to see the the character development, almost like writing an essay. Yeah. And we there is a lot of writing entailed in our, in most of our day to day. We have to watch a film and then we have to rate it. And we have to be able to explain why we like it and a lot of the times we have to write it down and it's really hard when a lot of um a lot of the times um points are can't come across or it has to do a lot with technical or development taste um -hmm. I'm sorry technical taste is is not as important as um story so I think that's what led me to to love my job or, or or pursue it more is the idea of storytelling I really like storytelling and I, I loved books I loved telenovelas growing up I'm Mexican- American mm-hmm. um I've always loved um, sitting around you know just drinking my fa- my family always told stories we were gossipers and <laughs> and you know we had to know everything that was going around the neighborhood so it's the same kind of feeling just knowing or being able to showcase different stories from around the world and from um, different cultures and ethnicities. It's it's really what's pushed me.
0: So I feel like every film festival probably has its things that it pushes for and wants mm-hmm. more of in their program. But like you personally, what do what stands out to you the most when you're just going through a huge batch of films?
2: It's really diff I mean, we get asked that question so much. Yeah. And it's really difficult. Um, but it is really obvious when something different stands out. Um we we see about a thousand, over a thousand films each um programmer so when something is different it really does pop out um one of the biggest trends now is um because technology is getting cheaper um things that we see often are now or especially this year is like drone shots (laughs) (laughs) or you know so we tend to see things over and over or there's maybe a, a school thought that the schools are teaching or so when something is completely different than the rest and i don't know it just really stands out to us but i that's what i stick to something that's really true um if you're forcing something it's really comes across in in your art or in your you know in your film something that's not real or not really um you know, your story.
0: Yeah. Are there trends like in the submissions that you like specifically besides the drone shots that just get kind of
2: like really repetitive? I mean, the classic that we get in as shorts is... um you wake up with an alarm, and then the short starts. Yeah, so there's always an alarm shot. Or, you know that was
0: in film school. Though. Yeah, like, I, that was a cliche when I was in film school. Yeah, it's
2: still done That's by amazing. everybody. Everyone still does an alarm clock. The different alarm clocks too. I mean, now they've gone to obviously digital or like an iPhone. Right. But before it was obviously the ring, and now it's like the the ding 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 or the different iPhone alarms yeah but yeah there's so many drone shots everywhere everyone has like this big massive um establishing shot of where you are from (laughs) from an aerial (laughs) view and you're like a drone have you noticed just
0: because like you said i mean the technology is cheaper so that Mm -hmm. enables things like drone shots but it also just enables more people to be able to make a film in the first place has that expanded like the diversity of the kinds of films
2: that you see totally i mean it's definitely increased our um submissions this year we've had the most a record number of submissions we've had over eight thousand submissions and so it does mean people are now making more um but and it does mean because it's cheaper, we're getting different countries and different um, ages, more, you know, way younger kids are sending things um, because they have an iPhone, you know. Or we had last year, the feature films had the film Tangerine, yeah. which was fully shot on an iPhone. It's still beautiful. And it, I mean, and shooting on an iPhone is still not easy, but it is it does mean you can test boundaries and mm-hmm. people are doing that completely. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, what, what, what would be something, I guess if, if there was a, sorry, I'm going to rephrase this question. Uh, cause you said a lot of new countries are like coming into the picture in mm-hmm. film festivals. Is there like a country in particular where you feel like there's a really interesting scene going on or, um, or, or I don't yeah. know, like just, or maybe not, maybe not even a country, maybe yeah. just like a, a a school of thought, like a, if there's like a cool sci-fi movement happening <laughs> or something like that, which I'm always rooting for.
2: Well, totally. I mean, a couple the the last couple years, Chile has been producing a lot of films and bringing to light a lot of young directors. But also, I mean, the VR scene is growing, and even the new frontier section here at Sundance is growing. We have a huge um, selection of shorts of um VR. Mm-hmm. Um and now the but I mean this is the year that New Frontier is celebrating 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's so wild. And when I, the first year I came, it was a small little venue. And now I think it's three different venues yeah, to huge. accommodate everything. I even feel like it's bigger just this year
0: from last year. I feel mm-hmm. like it's double the size just in it's in terms of how many like exhibits or installations there are. It's huge.
2: Yeah, because the section used to be experimental and form. And now, or in storytelling, experimental Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, and now it's more informed. So, you know, ways and not only like, meaning you can watch something not only in a theater, but in different spaces or using different, I don't know, (laughs) just like structure. Yeah, Yeah. The idea of a theater is no longer a necessity.
0: Which is interesting because I mean, Mm -hmm. I wrote about this in my intro for the festival, Mm -hmm. but you know, Last year was my first year coming here, and mm-hmm. it wasn't my first film festival. But this one is so intensive, and as far as like getting out here, mm-hmm. taking a bus up to your condo, like walking around in the snow to get around, standing in lines, and you know, you really start to think, like, couldn't we just stream all these? Yeah. <laughs> like,
2: I mean, yeah, that's very true. But
0: what's what do you think is the benefit for being here and and being in Park City and what and in a theater with everybody else, or in New Frontiers, like actually demoing stuff?
2: Um, I don't, I, there's one, there's a couple examples. I remember once I saw a movie, um, by myself and I sat down in towards the middle of a seat of the theater in the middle. And I was completely blown away by the movie. And when I came out, I told everybody, this is my favorite movie. Everybody needs to go watch it. And all my friends had streamed it or like watched it before on a screener. Mm-hmm. And everybody said, no, it, it's not a good movie. You just got completely blown away by the experience and Uh it actually the experience is unlike any other you know seeing these theaters be full of people just interested in indie film that means nothing to anyone right like we have no idea what is coming the next 10 days you might see a film that might change your life yeah or change your thoughts I don't know so I think that idea of just going into things blindly and being surprised is really exciting yeah. I'm. no one has written reviews you're just right. ex, you know it's all expectations that's my favorite thing about it mm-hmm. is just coming in and not
0: having this narrative like good or bad like yeah. not just there's nothing to live up to it you can just let a film happen which feels very pure and very rare now mm-hmm. you don't get to do that too much
2: outside of a film festival yeah. um, and it's fun to get out of perfect LA weather Weather. yeah <laughs> I never see snow ever. I'm I wearing a, a jacket right now. You I know you're
0: sorry. <laughs> the apartment is like cranked up to 80 degrees, it's like truly an LA apartment in the middle of Utah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in in terms of just like how you spend your 10 days here, like what, aside from the films, like what's. What's what's your favorite part about it? What's your favorite part of coming out every year?
2: Well, I forget why I'm here. And, you know, I <laughs> coming out every day, you know, you have to fly out. We had a, hor- you know, we had a, an early flight. And like you said, we have to take a shuttle from Salt Lake and your schedule is really full we have introductions and Q&As and programmers are basically like hosts to the filmmakers people are coming from all over, all over the world and we're here to remind them that they're awesome and connect them to the right people mm-hmm. um but it isn't until we do a Q&A and someone is completely blown away by something or to see that filmmaker really enjoy the way the film was programmed and the mm-hmm. order it was programmed they it really is made you know makes that the last 6 months that we spend programming and placing things worth it.
0: Talk about that a little more like about the idea of programming. Like you mean in terms of put
2: what category it's with or like what it's alongside or in shorts in particular it's um it's a big task because we do have a lot of good films at the end of watching but um we have to make up programs and our programs are almost we try our best to to benefit each film. If we had an entire Program of comedy, you know, the audience is just gonna get tired of laughing right. at one point. Yeah. So we try to make sure that every film plays well along um, with the other one. So it it takes us a long time, and mm. it takes us many tries. And we watch the programs over and over together, and we try to we watch them individually and then in group to see if we get a uh, reaction. So it's a huge process that we really are thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Um, And detailed with. So it's really nice when people compliment it. Yeah. And it tends to be something that people really like at Sundance the way we place shorts.
0: Yeah. Is it is it sometimes difficult, do you think, to get people out to the shorts programs just because like the big movies that have recognizable star mm-hmm. names in them kind of take up a lot of the oxygen, so to speak?
2: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I yeah, uh. we the shorts, the shorties have to fight, <laughs> yeah. you know, premieres and and so many other things. But actually, we we try our best to put them in good slots. To, you know so people can come out but also a lot of people here are are also in that mindset for discovery mm-hmm. so they they're looking for these filmmakers they're looking for these stories and now there's a new um interest in purchasing shorts mm-hmm. Nas is buying um the New York Times is buying. Different outlets are purchasing shorts, so we do have buyers come in, yeah, with interest, and there are sales of shorts happening now.
0: I didn't realize that was happening for shorts. Is it just mm-hmm. for digital stuff? For digital
2: online? online, if you go to the Condé like New Yorker website, they have a lot of our shorts. Wow. And so I don't know the the contracts or you know the dealings with that, but filmmakers get to you know put their shorts up with with the websites and they have they reach a larger audience yeah if it has like a new yorker label
0: for me covering the film festival that kind of stuff and the fact that like amazon is picking up stuff ahead of time it makes it actually more fun for me to cover because like these movies are movies that my audience might actually see Mm -hmm. in the near future it's not necessarily just in this bubble of like special film film festival stuff that nobody else gets to see um that happens when you're like
2: I hope you guys get to see it. It's the best movie I've ever seen. And then no one ever gets to see it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that happened like my favorite, my personal favorite movie from last year was advantageous. Yes. And, uh, and that was one that I feel like nobody was talking about Mm -hmm. afterwards or like not to the degree that I wanted them to be talking about it. Mm -hmm. But then I got picked up by Netflix. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like a few months afterwards and it, you know, it had a short theatrical run, but really like being on Netflix was so valuable because, you know, you want people like more than, like 50 people in New York and LA to see the film. Yeah. Um, totally. And that's really cool. Like, cause I feel like there is this feeling, especially from, I think like a lot of people who maybe read a site, like the verge, for example, like don't really understand how a film festival fits into like a modern understanding of entertainment because it does feel like this closed off thing. But I feel yeah. like now there's so many more possibilities for stuff here.
2: Yeah. The market is getting bigger. It used to be a market where, yeah, only certain films were being purchased, but now everything is, is completely up for grabs. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. So you work on uh, still a few
2: festivals now.
0: Um.
2: What are all the ones that you currently... So I on? was at AFI Fest for a couple years, and now I'm full-time at LACMA as the yeah. associate curator. Right. So we do year-round programming um, and Tuesday matinees of classic Hollywood films. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I am... Um, but you've worked... What are, like,
0: what, what every film festival you worked at? Because I feel like there's a lot of them.
2: So much. I mean, for sure I've worked um, LAFF, the Los Angeles right. Film Festival. AFI Fest was a big one that I yeah. spent a lot of time in. Um, the Philadelphia Film Festival. Right. For I was thinking bit. of that. Yeah. yeah. And that was really fun. It's a complete different audience. And I actually got to program stuff there that I would never be able to p- program in LA because their audience is hungry for other things. Hmm so it, how, it was how would you cool. describe the difference um they're a little bit older and um way more open to art um hmm. cinema hmm. yeah i think um a lot more people that you know attend museums um attended yeah. the philly film festival interesting kind of the east coast
0: and it's less is it less like sales oriented less industry oriented oh yeah
2: those are regional festivals yeah um the goals are for the city to come out yeah. and see movies that were played all over the world. It's kind of like a, yeah. So of all
0: these places that you've worked or had experiences in, like, I, th- I think that there's like a cliche idea of what a, su- a Sundance film is or mm-hmm. like what, you know, what go- goes to sunset, uh, sunset, Sundance, but what would you say it is now? Like in 2016, like what, what
2: characterizes a Sundance film? in general? Um, daring, diverse, um, something that yeah i think daring is definitely especially I, I, i've been watching the competition and all those stories are wild they're definitely beyond um the usual dramas it's just things that are so different i'm really impressed by by the competition this year in the next section so you know yeah. things that are definitely um a struggle to <laughs> to fund or find Mm -hmm. funding for and usually that's because they're daring so people are not as willing to take a risk and and the next section that's where tangerine
0: was last year exactly yeah i mean i feel like that's that's the category i've always got my eye on of course like you know it's cool to see the premieres Mm -hmm. and everything here but something that's actually going to take you like completely broadside you is going to be in in next for me as far as like yeah. a
2: dramatic scripted film totally yeah. i mean these are films that i feel well yeah they're they're lower budget and they're someone that we've never heard of or we're mm-hmm. or has has been working around indie film and is has something that's bigger yeah and um i don't know showing their growth as a filmmaker yeah That's um, really exciting
0: well, it was really cool to talk to you about this. I mean, nice. like we're gonna hang out more. But, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but I and I already asked you this, but uh, I want I'm wondering if the answer is still the same. But like, tell me three movies I should see this week.
2: Um, features or shorts? I can of any of anything. Give me two features and one short. Um, two features. You have to watch Swiss Army Men. Okay. The Daniels. Yeah, they're crazy. That's on my list. But it's sure. so cool. Um, also, I love Paul Dano. I mm-hmm. think I've I mean, I definitely have always loved, loved Paul Dano, but he's he's so good. And he's so good <laughs> these, you know, the last couple of years. Um, I also really liked Come As You Are in competition as well. Um, it's set in um, the Nirvana 90s uh-huh. and it just has some weird twists. And I really like every all the actors in it. Mm-hmm. And I think the breakthrough um, star in that m- this year is going to be in that movie The the protagonist the female protagonist she's beautiful and great is that Amanda Stenberg? yeah yeah she had a, a teen vogue yeah i'm kind here. of obsessed with her Isn't right now because did? of that article i know like, <laughs> i think every year i have like a teen i want to hang out with yeah yeah. And i think i'm gonna be figuring out how to hang out with her this year we need to go stalk Amanda Stenberg. that doesn't sound creepy at all yeah <laughs> um
0: well, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to this year a lot, and um, yeah, I'll be trying to I'll try to get out to some shorts also.
2: Yes, I didn't please get come out to some your... shorts, and I'll introduce you to short filmmakers. Cool. They're weird and awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right, um, thanks so much. Thanks.
0: Okay, uh, that is our podcast this week. Thanks for listening, um, and thanks for Delcia for coming on to chat with me. Um, we will be back next week, and I'll have much more in detail to talk uh, talk, to, talk about with regard to the festival. So you can stay tuned for that. Um, and be sure to listen to uh, the most recent What's Tech about what are film festivals. If you want more about Sundance and film festivals in general, um, what should what are you gonna plug? What are you gonna plug, Liz? You gotta plug I- something.
1: Oh my gosh, <laughs> I have to plug something. Uh, mm-hmm. I would like you all to check out. Uh, www.theverge.com slash science. <laughs> Good one. Oh, Good okay, one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, we've got a bunch of we've got a bunch of cool new videos uh, that are coming up, including one about uh, prairie voles and uh, how they comfort each other, uh, which you Sweet. should definitely check out. So, yeah, take a look. Um, I'm Liz Lapato at Ms. Lopato,
0: MsLopato M-S Lapato at Twitter. And I am Emily Oshita at Emily Oshita, my whole name, on Twitter. And thank you very much to Andrew Marino, our producer, who is just bringing our podcast back with a vengeance. And we are very grateful. And um, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, Verge ESP, on iTunes. And we are also at Verge ESP on SoundCloud.com. And that's it. Uh, See you all next week. Bye, folks.